Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that follows the money behind our beautiful game. I am, of course, idiot in resident Kevin Day, and with me, as ever, the reason we're here, football finance expert at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, Kevin. Good. Uh, can we draw a veil over the fact that somehow, miraculously, Brighton are above us and goal difference for some reason? Oh, it won't last. Uh, oh, 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 good. Sorry, that's a, that's a pro-Palace comment, isn't it? No, no, we got Leicester at home next, then Liverpool oh, away. My, uh, well, I tell you what, I'm, Leicester were really good at Salas Park. Yeah. Very, very good. But it's not about the beautiful game, it's about the money behind the beautiful game. So, uh, coming up this week, football agents. Yeah, you've demanded it and we've, we're supplying it. So, see, the economic speak. Very economic, yeah, so yeah. I'm very impressed. Uh, we will be joined by a man who's been an agent for some time and is former General Secretary of the Association of Football Agents. Christ, they've got a union. Uh, plus, we'll look at the latest in the Emiliano Sala transfer tragedy. Why Derby County only sacked one of the players involved in that car crash, which is a very murky story, and uh, your questions. But first, let's take a deep breath and jump into the world of football agents. And I'm very pleased to say that we are joined by Jonathan Booker. Hi, Kevin. How are you, Jonathan? Uh, very well, thank you. Good. Uh, thank you very much for coming along and allowing us to use your real name. Uh, <laughs> I think it will probably come as no surprise to you, Jonathan, that every time we talk to people about football finance, fans, it doesn't take long for agents to crop up. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll know that, that players' fees and agents are a recurring theme, certainly in questions we've got. So yeah. thank you for being here. No problem. Uh, I must warn you that one or two of the questions... I'm not as hostile as it may sound, <laughs> first of all, but you're, you're in amongst friends. Uh, I, I do want to start with, with this, though, because in 2015, the FA scrapped the exam for intermediaries or agents, whatever you want to call them, and since then, the number of intermediaries or agents or whatever you want to call them has gone up from 550 to 4,000, and there are only 3,700 professional footballers, so... Is that good news or bad news for an established and credible agent like you? Um, well, first of all, those numbers have been a bit skewed depending on who is conveying those figures. Well, the producer's here. He's the one who skewed them. Well, <laughs> the, f the first element is that in 2015, it was decided by FIFA to change the agent's regulations to intermediary regulations. And that ultimately passed on to the likes of the FA and all the national associations. Was there a reason they did that? Um, I think it was something along the line, and they were quite open to say it, that the system wasn't working. Okay. So in their wisdom, as many would say, and they were warned many times prior to it actually happening, this is going to make it worse. But they decided to, and this is their term, abandon the regulations, okay. abandon the licensing system, and implement intermediaries. Now, prior to... 20, April 2015, and it was April the 1st. We joke it was April Fool's Day that they did it. And I was expecting Sepp Blatter to jump out from behind a hedge and say April <laughs> Fool. But um, prior to that, we had four categories of authorised agents in England. And of those, we had licensed agents, which were about that number. So when you combine the registered lawyers, the registered close relations, the overseas agents and the registered agents, then you end up with subsequently more num a higher number. At the moment, I estimate there's about 2,200 okay. registered intermediaries in England. That doesn't count the other nations. It doesn't count Scotland or, or whatever. Um, and I think it's accurate that 
we can estimate since the time that it came in, there's been close to 4,500 intermediaries that have been registered on the system since that time. What did that exam entail? What did it take to become an agent before this was changed? I mean, we talk about the exam, which sounds a slightly odd thing to do. There's, there's been various states. There used to be the state where there was, there was FIFA licensed agents. There's no longer technically any FIFA licensed agents. You are licensed by a national association, so you, you might be a FA registered intermediary now or an FA licensed agent before. There's FIFA match agents who arrange matches and fixtures. Um, and at that time, it used to be an interview in front of a panel, whether it was the FA or FIFA. They used to have to file a bond. Um, but that's going back some way. When I entered the industry, you had to pass the uh, the CRB check. You, oh, right. you had to have a certain amount of professional indemnity insurance. You had to pass the exam um, and, and basically go through those processes. But as of 2015... The exam has gone, and the exam at the time, reportedly, it it was about seven to fourteen percent pass rate. Well, wow! And what sort, I mean, I mean, I'm intrigued by what sort of questions are. It makes it sound like a taxi driver doing the knowledge. Is it? it is it questions about football, about economics, about accountancy? It, it's or? it's questions about football, and you you'd have so many questions by the national association who were running the exam, and so many questions set by FIFA, right. um, and it would be anything from. Uh, your, engage, uh, your approach to represent a player who was born on this date, you look to sign in a rep agreement on this date, can you do this, can oh, you do okay. that, what is the outcome, or even down the lines of uh, what proportion of uh, compensation is due to the player's training club if he transfers before the end of his contract. So it's, it's gone from being very difficult to become an agent to as easy as you like, basically. Mm, pretty much, yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask, it's going to be slightly different the pod this week because I'm going to invite Kieran to ask some of the questions to you before we get on to other... But one question that crops up from all football fans is in different ways or other. If I look at a player like Wilf Sahar, you see him leaving Sellers Park, there's always nine or ten people around him. How many of those are going to be his agent or his intermediate? Does a player have only one agency or agent or have you got people looking after image rights, people looking after transfers, looking after different aspects of, of his career? It's it's a difficult case to say because I've heard of situations where on a transfer going through there being six or seven people purporting to be the agent, whether it is the registered agent, whether it isn't, whether they're in charge of the commercial dealings, are they the commercial agent? Because the commercial agent technically isn't licensed isn't registered they have different dealings you will then have the situation where a, um, an agent might well subcontract so there'll be another agent working under a main agent or you'll have numerous agents from the same agency working and so it, it gets very very confusing and to to add to that I've I've it's come to my attention on numerous occasions now that there are actually cases where even though we have exclusive and non-exclusive agreements in representing the player, there's some players who have multiple rep agreements exclusive with different agents. Okay. Now, only one will, will be registered, will be recognised by the football authority. They have their own criteria, which is very unclear at the moment how they work that out, whether it's the date that it's lodged or, or whatever. But the question is, 
those are still legally binding agreements that the player has signed. So the player has a liability there. Well, two more questions, one of which I'm going to ask you and one of which I'm going to ask Kieran before I get Kieran to ask. The, the other big question that comes up, certainly talking to Palace fans, because uh, yeah, we had an agent who in recent seasons has represented six or seven first-team players. But people always ask, can an agent work for the club and the player at the same time? Or, and, or the buying-selling club? And the player at the same time, you know, can can he negotiate on behalf of the team that's buying and the team that's selling and the and the player? Currently, the regulations have nothing in place to stop the agent working for the player, the selling club, and the buying club on the same transaction. Really? So that would encourage clubs then to look for players of the same agent. Then, presumably, was it? Does it make life easier if you're buying? Six or seven, because we always assume at Palace, if, you, if you've got one agent that seems to have the, the ear of the chairman and has bought players in before, that you almost instinctively say to him, well, who else have you got? Some, some clubs have preferred agents. Now, how that, how that relationship is built... Is that legal, legitimate? If they are not encouraging a player to breach their current representation with whoever may represent them. There's been cases reported in the past where managers or clubs have said, well, you know, you can sign for us, but you've got to be represented by the... That is, in the FA regulations, you cannot base a transaction or a transfer on the basis of the player must be represented by a certain agent. Much the same as a player cannot be forced, cannot be compelled to have to have an agent. Oh, that's interesting. If they're confident enough to do it, but we've heard stories in the past where, where mothers and brothers and whoever have represented players and they've gone on to become senior players and they've been paid less than junior players in the squad. OK. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask Kieran a question here because I've just remembered it's technically his idea in the first place, his podcast. Uh, feel free to put some headphones on while he asks it because... I will then come back and ask you, because I, th- I think you'll understand that one thing that does energise football fans a lot, other than transfer fees, and, and in general, fans don't seem to mind players earning money, but they do seem to get worked up by the idea of agents earning money. So we had a situation at Palace where Simon Jordan refused to pay Tim Cahill's agent the 5%, and we so we lost Tim Cahill, who could have kept us up, and that sparked a, a debate. So, Kieran, in terms of... The annual turnover of a mythical club, uh, well, let's well, let's just, let's just say Brighton, for example, your club. That, you know, how much of that would normally be agents' fees? How much of it? How much is an agent taking out of a not not taking out is the wrong word that implies skullduggery, but how much is a club spending on agents' fees? in a particular season. Well, if, if you take a look at the last figures produced by the, the FA, they said it was £261 million spread between the Premier League. That's for that's for licence agents. And from what Jonathan's Sorry, suggesting, £261 million, pounds, which that's a lot of nurses. You know, we, we, we talk nurses, don't we? In terms that's of, purely on agents' fees. That's purely on agents' fees. I'm just going to rope my eyebrows down again. That's just, we're, we're only 10 minutes in and already my eyebrows have been... <laughs> Okay, that's a lot. That's more than I expected. Yeah, and myself and Jonathan were having a chat before the show, and you reckon it'll actually be more than that because potentially you might have some unlicensed agents, and as we've just been discussing, you might have a commercial agent and 
a player's representative and immediate, and how many of these actually get lodged with the FA is, uh, is, is open to debate. So how much then, so is, a, is the, the agent's fees are all, pay, all paid by the club? Not, is the player not paying the agent as well? Well, again, I think Jonathan's probably the expert here. Presumably, he's the player's got a contract with the agent which says that a proportion of your salary, a proportion of your commercial uh, earnings, which are negotiated by me, will, will come to me as your, as your representative. So you can see then, Jonathan, why fans get worked up by yeah, that amount of money. So, but I, I hesitate to use the word legitimate, but clearly you're a more legitimate agent than some of the people that are operating in in football because as you can see you can have a mate operating as your intermediary so yeah that must that must frustrate you then when you see people that are semi-official taking that sort of money out of a, out of a club because it reflects on on you doesn't it yeah definitely it, it's the, even in those figures when they're released that there is a certain amount of skew in those figures because everybody sees that as these are the figures that are released between this date and this date right and what they're what they are actually are figures of transactions so some of those fees could relate to a contract or a transfer that was done three four years ago it's only that the payment uh, on the instalment right, is made during right. that period. The other element is that, and this this is something I try and explain when I talk to people who, who talk about agents' fees and the excesses of it, is that, yes, some of those fees will be paid by the club for services to the club. Now, it's arguable what those services are, but also some of those fees will be benefiting kind, as somebody might get in their in their normal working life as a company car is is, is supplied so the agent's fee is seen as that so it's applicable with a tax so it is actually a payment that goes from the club a direct deduction from the player's salary that goes to the agent so you've got a mix of those two you've also as kieran says you've got an element that there might be unregistered agents fees in there not in there sorry so those might be excluded so there's a certain amount of skew in these figures and i i remember speaking to a club official several years ago and i had the conversation about the agent's declaration of fees and the club official wasn't aware that he had to include on the declaration those that were made as benefit in kind on behalf of the player to the agent. So those figures for that club would have been lower than what they should have been. Right, OK. So now you can see how these figures can be skewed, they can be manipulated, and they can be higher than yeah. what they actually are. Kieran will recognise the look I currently have on my face. When I put my chin in my hand, <laughs> I try and, it looks like I'm being intelligent and working things out in my head, but I'm actually a little bit... A little bit about Kieran shot down one of my long cherished beliefs in the last pub, which I always, like a lot of pub football accountants, always assume that players get 10% of every transfer fee. That's obviously long gone. But is there a standard? It's like in my industry, for example, most agents will take 15% of everything, whether or not they've got you the job or not, they will take 15% of everything. Is, is there a, any kind of recommended minimum standard in football for an agent to take? So if a new player comes to you, do you decide on the hoof how much you're going to charge him or, or is there a fixed rule on this? I, I think a lot of agents um, apply it differently. A lot will try and conceal payments. Um, 
really. <laughs> well, shameful. As a self-employed person, I can't. Well, I really can't condone that sort of. If I if I tell behavior. you a story about well, a player that I came to represent, and we negotiated his release before the transfer window closed, so that he could go and agree a contract with somebody else. Can I just stop you there? Can please continue the story? But I just want to point out because people will be at home listening to this, wondering who some of your players are. I don't want to know who your players no. are because I don't think it's fair to even I ask. don't disclose the players. Well, actually, way. and I don't think it's fair of us to ask who you represent. Mm-hmm. So just just so people at home listening know that, because mm-hmm. some of them will be going, well, come on, who are we talking about? So it's really not fair to ask yeah. you to name names. So, but please carry on with what we said. We negotiated the release of the player from his contract uh, at the club. The club weren't going to retain him. He had six months left. And so he left the club. And we had to get it done before the transfer deadline day, before the window closed. Because if they're still registered to a club, they, they, they then aren't a free agent after the window closes. So they can't go on somewhere else. And this, this player needed games. So we got him released. And the player in question actually turned around and legitimately questioned my commissions for providing the service, getting him released, getting him the new club, so on and so forth. And he says, well, I don't understand it. My agent, my previous agent, didn't charge me anything. And I looked back through his contract and there was a huge figure over four years that he never realised that he had actually paid his, his agents. But because he didn't physically pass that money over, it was made on his behalf by the club. He oh. didn't know how much he'd paid his agents. Crikey. Um, that's, uh, the finances apart, I'm intrigued as to what you do for a player. I mean, is, is there a level of sort of pastoral care? And the reason I ask this question is I remember talking to Neil Ruddock about a week after he'd finally given up football. I mean, technically he gave it up when he signed for Palace, but we carried on paying him for a while. Uh, <laughs> that was a really good deal. But he said about three days after he stopped playing, he had no club, he had a really bad toothache and he didn't know what to do. Because prior to that, in the previous 20 years, he'd either phone his agent or the club and they would sort out his toothache. And he, he didn't know where his passport was. Which, And he's not, despite his public image, he's an, he's an intelligent man, Neil, and he always has been. So I'm, I'm intrigued as to what an agent does on a daily basis for a player. Are you in constant contact with a player? Do you look after his welfare? Do you inquire how he is, how his family are, how his, whether his fish tank needs changing? Or do you only really get involved when he says to you, I want to move on or if there's an issue with the manager or... Again, it varies from agent to agent. For me personally, for quite a few of the people I know, there is a lot. I see it personally as you are working together and there's there's a big thing with agents that they lose sight that the player is the client. They've got to provide the service. They've got the fiduciary duty. Um, They've got a responsibility and just whether it be ensuring that players aren't skewed down the line of tax-efficient schemes and they get the right advice from the right people for the right reasons is part of it. Even talking to a player, whether they be 17 or 28 or, or whatever, and actually saying to them, if football stopped tomorrow... And I mean football because the answer to this question, if if you couldn't play, what would you do? They'll Mm, say they'd be a coach. But if football stopped tomorrow and football didn't exist, what would you do? What do you want to do? Because you've got to start planning and preparing in that time because your playing career could end very, very quickly. Mm. 
And the other thing is that I try to instill in all players, and it doesn't matter what age they are, because I would say the most mature player I've ever I've ever represented was 19. You know, in his attitude and the way he went about things, in that I and I I really instill in players that look lifestyles come and stay. Your income as a footballer tends to come and go very very quickly, so you've got to live within your means and you've got to plan. And for me, throughout the period that you're representing them, you're not always doing things for them. You're there to support, but you're actually developing the other skills so that they know what to do with their finances they know what to do outside the world of football so that when they are outside of that bubble they can cope with it and for me personally I take great pride when former play, former players and former clients phone me up after their careers have ended yeah. and they say well what do you think of this do you because so, uh, that's my next. I, I do. So I do want to bring Kieran in, but I keep. <laughs> this is the first time I've not the first time I've met an hour. I tend to meet agents quite a lot in TV shows, but they're in very different circumstances. But can you be friends with a client? Would you try not to be? Um, for me, I try to detach myself from the personal element as much as possible and it is important that fiduciary duty everything even way back when I first registered one of the the primary rules in FIFA's in agents regulations at the time is to act in the priority interest of the client of the player that is your utmost concern and you do have a fiduciary duty to that and it's even found its way now into the most recent revision of FA regulations. So you have a fiduciary duty. When it comes to, and I know there's agents out there who enjoy, shall we say, the social aspects yeah. of the football circle, for me, that's, that's not part of it. And a lot of people, that's not part of it. it it's, it's, it's work. And yeah. you have a responsibility to these people to, to protect their best interests, to work in their best interests. Yeah, I'm going to hand over to you, Kieran, for a moment, because there's a lot circulating in my head at the moment, and I need to Google the word fiduciary. Uh, um, Kieran, clearly you have more of an insight into the financial world of agents than I have, so do you want to...? Well, I've got a couple of questions, and this is naming names. Um, I think, first of all, the Paul Pogba transfer a couple of years ago... um, I looked at the uh, Juventus accounts, and here we've got... You love the Juventus oh, accounts, they, they, Oh, they're my favourite. They, 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 <laughs> well, are, they are platinum. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute joy for me. I get, I get giddy when they come out each year. Um, I looked at the Juventus accounts, and you've got... Juventus wanted to sell Paul Pogba. Manchester United wanted to buy Paul Pogba. And Paul Pogba wanted to go from Juventus to Manchester United. And you look in the, the Juventus accounts, and it says, payment to the agent... 26 million euros. Why didn't Juventus just turn around and said, we've, we've got a willing we've got a willing player, we're quite happy to sell. Why didn't they just deal directly with Manchester United? And did Manchester United also have to go and pay the agent? And did Paul Pogba get part of that deal? Mm. You know, you know, and, you know, we, we've only looked at it because United... Um, I, I've looked at all 1,400 pages of Manchester United's annual accounts because I've got no friends. Um, but... <laughs> I'm your yep. friend. Yep. In as much as a Brighton fan and a Palace fan, and somebody who reads a 1,400-page document willingly can be friends. I'm back in the game, by the way, people. 
there was nothing in the United accounts, but, but that's cause simply because under because Manchester United are registered in the Cayman Islands, I think that's what's known as a, a light touch regime, mm-hmm. um, and, and therefore that there was no details. But how can that, you know, from from an agent's point of view, you must think, well, good luck to the agent. I I, I know he's I know he's I know his initials, but I, I can't pronounce his name for for toffee for legal reasons. <laughs> but. How can he justify that fee, or do, or does he not have to justify that fee? Well, I can pronounce his name, but I can't for legal reasons. Much <laughs> the same. Um, the the thing is that I've I've gone through the documents that allegedly pur- purport to the agreements between the agent and the selling club, and the agent and the buying club, and the information I've seen for the services provided to the selling club it was something uh, the terms were something along the lines of it creating hype and the word hype is in there about a future transfer wow. to create a bidding war and higher value um and also reference to transfer fees that might be received if it exceeded a certain amount there was a fixed commission to find a buyer and then there was another commission if it exceeded a certain amount okay so that's what i've seen from that side what's important to say is that the last thing i saw from manchester united is that they've actually said they weren't aware the agent was working on behalf of juventus so that that's perfectly viable you know i'm not here to question what what they say and you see the services provided to uh, Manchester United as a buying club, slightly different services, negotiate with the selling club, advise the club on the contract. And these are all questionable. But there is one interesting term in there right on the very end. And it's to encourage a future stable relationship between the club and the player. And that's the agent's job. That's that's purportedly the agent's job. And quite often you see these variations. And there are services that agents provide to clubs to benefit the player. Some of them are more questionable than others. You know, other ones would be questioned that this is purely for, say, a tax implication to reduce the tax liability of say the club or whoever and there's there's lots of agreements like that because this is so so high profile this is the way the reason this one has come to the fore i think i i want to move on to two other topics that are actually agent related and i'd like your insight but before i do that i'd like to ask you about wolf sahar hypothetically about wolf sahar because i think this must be an unusual situation that wolf sahar has left his agent uh he's working out his notice period of his agent but clearly Wolf will be moving on from Palace and it can't be that often that a player of his calibre comes on the market for agents. So will he be looking for an agent that can already bring him a new transfer? So, for example, will he say to agent A, if you bring me a Tottenham move, I'll, I'll make you my agent? Or will he be looking for an agent that he thinks will help him? Down? So will the, will the agents who work at that level be sort of jostling to get deals that they can bring to him in order to... I I think that's more likely with a with a player of that calibre. Um, but I have players of all levels who say, well, if you get me an agreement, then I'll sign the rep agreement with you. 
But, right, so that's not unusual then. It's not unusual, right. but what players have to regard is that by the letter of the regulations is that that agent can't commit to any intermediary activity in negotiating and promoting the player to a club until he has a representation agreement. Right, okay. And the argument could be made, maybe the players would be more astute to have these non-exclusive representation agreements and if a, if an agent comes to them and says, well, I can get you a deal with this club or I can get you a deal in this in this country, limit them to that. If they say they can do that, fine. Then possibly speak to somebody else who can do it in another country. Right. I don't know of many places where that's done, right. but I would say with a player of very high calibre and very high value, there will be clubs that want to buy him and unofficial approaches to various agents would have, and working for the club. If they're securing the player for the club... They might already have that representation. I, I, I want to move on to what it is a separate topic, but it, it, it's kind of germane to everything we talked about. And I want to talk to you about it, Kieran, first of all. And it's the the terrible tale of Emiliano Sala, which rumbles on. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you'd like to think he could at least start to rest in peace. But FIFA have now said that Cardiff have to pay not for the transfer fee, essentially. And it, and it seems that Cardiff are slightly surprised by that. It's, it's. What are the financial implications? Of you? Is, were you surprised by the fact that FIFA said he, they have to pay? Do they have to pay the full fee? Well, the the fee is seventeen million euros, and yeah. it was two instalments of six and one in one of five. And what FIFA have said is that Cardiff must pay the first instalment. Now, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because he's either a player for Nantes, or he's a player of Cardiff. Um, but um, Cardiff's argument was that there was a little bit of outstanding paperwork, um, and therefore he, he wasn't one of their players. FIFA said, if you look at the key issues, he'd had a, he'd had a successful medical. Yeah. Nantes had released him from his contract. Cardiff had put in a bid for him, and both the, the uh, FA of Wales and the French Football Federation have said, He's got international clearance. So on that basis, he was deemed to be a Cardiff City football player at 5.30pm. He then got on the flight and, and this, this terrible incident occurred. But what I find absolutely staggering is that FIFA have said, you've been squabbling for the last six months. Mm. On top of the, the €6 million, Euros, you've got to pay interest. They're, they're treating him as if he's a second-hand car. He's just a commodity. And I think this is one of the things we were talking about last week is footballers they're young men they're sons they're brothers they're, they're yeah, husbands yeah. and boyfriends and now we've got two football clubs who've been doing and they've been leaking this in, into the public domain which has been really really disgusting behavior i think on, on behalf of anybody they've been trying to get their message across in the press and to be charging interest in relation to the death of a young man mm. is is pretty appalling Cardiff are going to appeal. They're going to go to the court for arbitration for sport because they don't want to pay the six billion. And hey, oh, oh the interest is running up on a daily basis. They don't want to pay that either. But do, do Cardiff not realise how that looks? I mean, I know it's a lot of money, but surely, Jonathan, between the three of them, FIFA, Cardiff, and non, they could have said, look, whatever the money involved is, we'll chip in half of it each and give it to the family because it's just it's beyond tawdry and it damages. Football, isn't it? And it's, I can't understand why Cardiff. Sure, I mean, I know they've, they, they're not in the Premier League anymore, and of course, 
legally they're perfectly entitled to appeal to, but it just if I was a Cardiff fan, I'd be disappointed. I, I think a lot of people who have any connection with football, whether they be fans or people involved, are saddened by it. Whether some people who work in the industry are shocked by it is sadly not the case. Oh, really? And, you know, the football industry lacks common sense at the best of times. Okay, and that's from somebody who works deeply within it. It's now getting to the point where it lacks any empathy. And Kieran mentioned about players being seen as assets and, and so on and so forth, and that is it. You know, the the player is no longer of value to the club. Let's see how we can get him out of the club as quickly as possible. Or, And even comments from with, with, with regards to the development of young players now, even academies by some clubs are being seen as a way of, these players will never play for our first team. We don't envisage... We might get one in every six, seven, eight years but it's how much we can sell them on for. And there's a total lack of empathy. And that's the important thing for me, where the likes of agents and also the good agents who who do look after the person, you've really got to look after that client and look out for their best interests. Well, on a a similar note, the the Derby County story, which is not going away, there was a, a, a car crash, players over the legal alcohol limit. Um, they've now sacked Richard Keogh, um, but they haven't sacked Tom Lawrence and Mason Bennett, who were actually involved in causing the crash, who, I hate to sound cynical, are younger, better players than Keogh, probably, and have more sell-on value. But again, it's a question for both of you, but I, I know Richard Keogh's agent has been heavily implying that he has a side to the story, but... Derby are pretty much saying that Richard Kerr should have accepted the pay cut and then they wouldn't have sacked him and or he should have been wearing a seatbelt and they wouldn't have sacked him. From the financial point of view, I'll ask Jonathan about the pastoral care side of it in a moment, but from the financial point of view, what do you make of the decision to sack Keogh? What I find unusual is that he was sacked for gross misconduct when he'd been out for an event which had been organised by the club and then he was given a lift by an employee of the club mm. and he's deemed to be the guilty party. And, and that seems to be inconsistency. But then you look at his age, you look at the fact that he was, uh, he's been severely injured as a result of the crash and he's going to be out for 12 months and, he, and his contract's expiring in 18 months and he'll be 35 then. Bennett and, and Lawrence, 25 and 23. And then the comments which have came come from Mel Morris, who's the... Uh, the Derby, the Derby County owner, says, I, c- I can't let Lawrence and Bennett go because potentially another club could come in, give them a pay rise, give them a big signing on fee, and we're losing assets. And it comes back again to the football club does not see footballers mm-hmm. as yeah, people. Yeah. They are commodities. And from a financial point of view, if the gross misconduct case is, is upheld and I, and I think the PFA are going to appeal it then then you can see why Derby have done what they've done but as you and I we, we all want to believe in the romance of football yeah, yeah. and and and, uh, and it is about fair play 
And this is not fair in any way, shape or form. And, and to, the, to the credit of Derby fans, and I know one is a season ticket holder home and away, the, the Derby fans have made their feelings known towards the two players that are still pulling on Derby shirts. And considering that Keo is a, a bona fide club legend, I saw you nodding, Jonathan, when he, uh, Keo talked about the Derby chairman not wanting other clubs to come in. And from what you've told us about football, there would be, cynically, there'd be no shortage of other clubs who would be willing to come in and, and take them off their hands, cut price, despite what they're being yeah. charged with. Yeah, because the, the argument could be made with regards to the questionable conduct of the players. They might even be able to negotiate pay, paying those players a salary lower. Yeah. You know, because their their conduct, they've got to earn their way back up in their conduct and their maturity going forward. But I haven't seen the details of either the contract or what's been alleged towards the player. But as an agent, if I was representing the player and I didn't believe they were guilty of gross misconduct... I'd stand by the player. If I believe they had made an error, whether it be stupid or whether it be naive, I would possibly turn around and say, maybe it's worth considering this. Maybe it's worth moving on. Maybe it's worth severance. But it's obvious in this case, the agents and the player believe, and the PFA also coming in behind them, they do believe that it hasn't been gross misconduct and they're going to stand their ground, and they're quite right to do so. Just, I mean, this must be your an agent's worst nightmare, isn't it? The three o'clock in the morning phone call, and you, yes. and you get told... I mean, what do you do? Do you have a plan for this? Do you spring into action? Do You you, you do have a plan, and it, it, it can be the most minor thing uh, uh, in a situation where a player has, I don't know, had a break-in or whatever, or they don't Rudd, know how Neil to Ruddock's deal with it. Or Neil Ruddock's got a toothache. Or, 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 yeah. got a toothache yeah. or um, an incident where they might have been in trouble with the police. Touch wood, I haven't had that right. as of yet. Um, but you have all the things in place to deal with it. But it is. And I have heard stories of agents turn around and say, well, it's not my problem, it's your problem. I'm here to do your contract and negotiate with the club, you know, that's happened. Can you deal with it? Yeah. And that's it. Because they've got a rep agreement. They've fulfilled their obligations on their rep agreement. You're talking about pastoral care. Yeah. But you've got a split in the agents there. You've got some agents who will pick it up, deal with it, drive to the other end of the country to support the person in question, to make the relevant phone calls to help them. And you've got other agents who will turn around and say, well, you know, call me at nine, yeah. call me at ten. We are uh, unfortunately being beaten by time. Uh, again, as I thought we might. Um, so I'm going to ask Jonathan to come back again next week, if you if you don't mind. Mm. Uh, show me a secret. I'm, I'm talking about 10 minutes' time because we're doing two at a time. But <laughs> you know, when we do next week's pod, it will be as though you've done us a massive favour. Uh, I do want to ask one reader's question, though, a, list, a listener's question, rather, um, because we do... And I thank you very much for all the questions we get. And I'm sorry we can't get to all of them, but we've... Um, not unexpectedly, got loads of listeners, and then they all, they've all got interesting questions. So, Alan, I will, I promise at some stage in the future, we'll ask you a question about how much a football club contributes to HMRC in a tax year. But I, I, there's a question from Jamie, uh, as you can tell, the producer's back, because last week when the producer wasn't here, we gave out full names and addresses, but it's very much first name terms only now for the questions. So, I'm not entirely sure why, but Alan, Jamie, uh, it could be that they're mates of the producer, who knows? That we had legitimate questions in the last two weeks when he was he's in Scotland enjoying himself. 
Uh, but 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 this James, this is a question which I'm not sure you can answer this straight away, Kieran. To be honest, but I think it's a really interesting question. It kind of gets to the heart of why we're doing this pod in the first place, and it's it wants to know which club most overachieves and most underachieves in relation to its financial position. So, for example, Accrington, he says, are 90th in terms of, of income every year, but are around about 60th in the league. So that's that's very efficient. And he, he predicts that Sunderland would be, would be the least efficient club and Accrington probably the most. Is that a question that you could... Answer off the top of your head, is it? Something? Yeah, I, 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 I imagine think... it's something. If you've read fourteen hundred page documents on the tube on the way here, it's probably something. You've, this is what gets you to sleep at night. I imagine, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think we can do this on a on perhaps on, div- on a division basis. Right. So, so if you look at the Premier League, in in my view, without you've, you've, doubt, you've, you've researched this. I, you? I have researched. I, I should have. This, I yes. should have expected you to to have researched this. The, the club, <laughs> the club which overachieves every season, uh, is Burnley. Burnley. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, if you think about, it, they were they were in the Europa League two years ago. Um, they they finished seventh. Um, if you take a look at the Burnley wage bill, it's the third or fourth lowest in the Premier League every season. That my understanding of of Burnley is that they they tend to recruit uh, domestic players more yeah. than more than overseas yeah, players. They've got a really tight uh, wage bill. So you know, there's there's normally quite a range between clubs between the the highest paid players and the lowest paid players in the first team squad. With Burnley, it's it's really tight. So there's no big time Charlies allowed, and uh, and as a consequence of that, they've they've got a really tight knit operation. And you know, they they absolutely I, I, stuffed West Ham at the weekend. They they what well, they did partly thanks to the goalkeeper. And also I can tell you as a little interesting aside, I met Sean Dyche recently. He's got the firmest handshake of any man I've ever met in my life. And I, I thought Lewis Hamilton was the man with the firmest hand. And I said to him, I wish you'd warned me beforehand, because obviously I went in with the artistic... Uh, I've got quite a firm grip, but seriously, I mean, it couldn't have been more of a difference between the professional sportsman and the artistic feet, right? It's like, I had to go back in again. I'd say, I'm not letting that handshake stand as my official handshake. And then, obviously, him being a competitor, went in with a firmer handshake. <laughs> I was I was unable to write anything funny for the next 20 minutes. Insert your own jokes here, <laughs> listeners. But, uh, yeah. So, OK, so Burnley, so so, yeah, that's, Burnley, that's interesting. The, Burnley, the biggest overachievers. Okay. At present, and I know producer guy is going to be upset about this, it's got to be Manchester United as the biggest underachievers. What, the team that beat Brighton 3-1 on Sunday? Well, with two own goals. Could have been set. Oh, well, yeah. Two own goals. Not often we score three three at Old Trafford. I was about to say, I haven't got a dog in this fight, but I've got two. You and the producer, basically. <laughs> so they've got the biggest wage bill. Okay. They've, they've got the biggest amount of income. So And you know they're, they're finishing sixth and seventh in, in the Premier League. When it comes down to the Championship, biggest overachievers year after year. Club which everybody forgets. You list out, you list out the teams in the can Championship. I, can I guess? You, you, yeah. Brentford? Absolutely. Oh, good. That is that is excellent. Well, I'm, I'm basing that on uh, our friend with the big heart, <coughs> some of the tweets we've had recently from the Burnley fan, if you remember. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Ga- uh, Gandalf. Gandalf. Dr. Gandalf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Brentford are very, very smart. I mean, they, they, their owner is using one of these uh, sort of recruitment models, which is all database. Just a soccer ball. That's right. right thing, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Moneyball, sorry, what's it called? Moneyball. Moneyball, yeah, Moneyball. yeah sorry, yeah, yeah. Moneyball. Soccer ball was a game from the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that I've been told about. <laughs> probably the biggest underachievers, and the fans aren't going to like this because their chairman's actually been one of the ones who's been going on the warpath about other clubs. I'd probably say Middlesbrough because they've adjusted two years' worth of parachute payments and they've not really troubled the scorers significantly. This year, the parachute payments have dropped out 
and look where Middlesbrough are. Yeah, they, they are scrapping at the... That's really... Sorry, allowing for everything I said about time. That's really interesting because obviously they're, they're, they're in the Championship, but Middlesbrough are always a team that are associated with stability, you know, relatively you know, invest wisely. Gibson's been the chairman forever, gives his managers time. So that's... That's an inter- I wouldn't have predicted that. I would have. I was going to go Leeds, but Middlesbrough's an interesting one. Oh, Le- Leeds, Leeds, they've had this past the parcel of, of toxic <laughs> lunatics in charge of them, um, and they've now got a bit That's, more stability. Uh, that, that is a game show I would happily subscribe to Amazon to watch. Um, Past League. the parcel with toxic lunatics is a cracking <laughs> idea. This pod is a good idea, but that's a, that's the next one up there, isn't it? Yeah, well, Amazon, I'm sure, just just pitch it to them. Yeah, I'm currently working on an Amazon TV show, but um, my green room is very far from the Amazon execs' green room. <laughs> um, League One, you, you've already named those two clubs, Accrington and Sta- uh, Accrington and Sunderland. Uh, Sunderland are still in receipt of parachute payments. They've got the biggest wage bill. They should have got promoted um, last season. Yes. Surely if they'd done their job, and they hadn't. Yeah. Accrington, um, if anybody's ever had... Uh, the the delight of following the Accrington owner Andy Holt on Twitter because <laughs> he starts at six o'clock and you'll get twenty or thirty tweets put together and he's off on one you know he's he's you uh, know, they've got the best name stadium in the country as well the Wham Stadium, Wham stadium. Yeah. and those two clubs as well one is at the top of the declared agents fees for the last period and one is at the bottom of the declared agents ah fees. how interesting so. I will leave listeners to work out <laughs> which is which that's very interesting. <laughs> Um, and then I'll drop down to, to League Two, and League League Two is actually quite League Two is actually pretty competitive. But just for the fact that they are still there, just about, I'd say Morecambe are probably the biggest overachievers, simply because okay. they've they've managed on on crowds of you know just over one thousand a lot of the time to survive. Uh, Newport have done extremely well. I think the biggest underachievers, and and sadly they're no longer with us. It's Notts County. They they were given a huge budget by by the owner, right. Alan Hardy, and then he got into a, a few uh, complications uh, with his with his private company and selling sending photographs of his private parts on the on the internet. Probably didn't help either. It, uh, it really does, in my experience. I have um, to say, there's there's one or two situations when it gets you out of a hole, but you know. Normally, I would, I would advise against it to people at home listening to this. So, so yeah, look at on on those those would be my scores on the doors at present. That's fact. Jamie. I knew that'd be a good question. So, thank you for asking that. And um, Jonathan, thank you for being our guest, no uh, and thank you for coming back uh, next week, uh, forward slash in ten minutes time. Um, uh, Kieran, as ever, thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's an international break, so we can't even pretend that we've had a week off. And Palace are now above Brighton, which is infuriating. Um, this has been a adapted production, Price of Football. Uh, so thank you to them and thank you to uh, Soho Studios for hosting us uh, at the full fee, I should point out, for the people pointing out that we're getting it for nothing. And, and join us again, please, next week. As the world's largest network of remote professionals, we're here to help. Upwork is giving $1 million in talent grants to projects that counter the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 by connecting existing teams with independent experts in tech, creative, and operations to help save lives, to support communities, and rebuild the economy. Go to upwork.com slash work together to learn more.